Welcome to Pull Quotes, the podcast at the Review of Journalism, where I, Joe Fish, and my co-host, Emma Jones, bring you in-depth analysis of some of the biggest issues in Canadian journalism. Each episode, we'll be speaking with student journalists whose words fill the pages of the review about what it was like reporting on their featured stories and the voices they couldn't include, but who deserve to be heard nonetheless. We begin this week with journalist Emily Morantz. Emily, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you, Joe? I'm doing good. And and where are you? I am in my coat closet in my apartment. Um, and my parka is hitting me in the face. Yeah, I've I've actually got a similar setup. My uh my questions are propped up against a flannel. <laughs> Very professional. So for the bet for pretty much the entirety of the last semester, you've been working on a feature story for the upcoming print edition of the Review of Journalism. And would you mind just just telling me a little bit about your project? Um, So I wrote a profile of the wonderful Nadia Stewart, who is a video journalist and the executive director of the Canadian Association of Black Journalists. Um, And she had quite a whirlwind of a year, as many of us did, but like particularly in her line of work. Um, I think her organization went from being sort of small, quiet, sort of not getting a lot of attention to getting like this like tidal wave of attention following the George Floyd protests. And so it was really interesting to talk to her and hear her story and hear how that year sort of affected her philosophy of activism. So in the midst of your reporting, you you spoke to Brian Daly. You know, like as a journalist, you talk to lots of different kinds of people and some people are like really hesitant to talk and like sort of have trouble putting their like thoughts into words or their ideas into words, especially when you're talking about big ideas related to, you know, like race and identity and all of that. Um, But I spoke to Brian because he is the CABJ's Atlantic director. Um, And I spoke to him and he was just like, completely like had all of his thoughts totally in order was like such a great storyteller and he is like so passionate about his work and it just like drips off of everything he says just how excited he is to be talking about this stuff and how important he thinks it is and that's just like the dream in a source for a story right is someone who just like really cares about what they're talking about the timing of brian's appearance on our show is deliberate Almost exactly one year ago, the Canadian Association of Black Journalists and the Canadian Journalists of Colour put out a call to action to Canadian media organizations that outlined seven actions that they needed to take to address racial inequity within their newsrooms. Brian has been working as a journalist in Canada for decades, and he's had the opportunity to observe the industry from so many different vantage points. We wanted to talk to him about the issues within Canadian media that these calls to action aim to redress. We also wanted to discuss his own experiences as a journalist and the efforts the CABJ are taking to foster interest in journalism among young black people in Canada. I reached Brian Daly at a studio at CBC Halifax, where he currently works as a producer for CBC News. I wanted to talk about your role um, within the Canadian Association of Black Journalists. Yes, I'm the Atlantic director of the CABJ. My job is to implement uh, all of the CABJ's programs uh, at the national and regional level. Atlantic Canada is a region where the black community is underserved by a number of organizations in this country, both public and private. We have a unique situation in Atlantic Canada where the black community uh, dates back hundreds of years. They're not immigrants. They didn't come here 
in the last 20, 30 years. They arrived here with the United Empire Loyalists in the 18th century. That's a, 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 a historic community, a rich tradition. Unfortunately, the history of racism is uh, quite prominent. So uh, here in uh, Atlantic Canada, we uh, recognize that the, the black community has a lot to say. Uh, and then I also am part of, of course, the national executive being the Atlantic director. And our organization is focused on promoting uh, the uh, tremendous talent in our community, starting in high school, uh, through the universities, and then tr doing our best to help young people get jobs in an industry which is tough to crack for anyone, and much more so, as history has shown, for black uh, aspiring journalists. Right. And, and I want to talk more uh, about the programs that you guys are undertaking to help young black people get involved in journalism. But I'm just wondering if you could talk sort of a bit about what was the sort of situation that precipitated releasing these calls to action? Yes, we found that uh, black students uh, were, were having a much more difficult time getting work uh, over the course of uh, time. We noticed that newsrooms were not reflecting the uh, increased diversification of our society, but specifically uh, the great number of black students who had chosen journalism as a career who are trying to get into the business and finding it to be very difficult. And that's uh, that was reflected in what we see uh, in television news. Uh, virtually no, There are virtually no columnists in the newspapers, very, very few in the radio stations. So anyway, any uh, aspect of the media, really, we're seeing a significant lack of representation, despite the fact that our major cities have extraordinary diversity. We have diversity. In our journalism schools, we have a lot of young people uh, and, and other journalists who've told us that there's been it's been difficult for them to crack into the business. We recognize, of course, that it's difficult for all journalists to crack into the business. However, now you have to start talking about some of the specific incidents that we've been told about, terrible workplace environments, workplace environments where black people are marginalized, not able to get promotions even if they do get in having to deal with racial slurs on the job, that extra burden uh, of also being singled out where their objectivity in some cases are, is being questioned if they pitch a black a story in the black community. They're feeling like they can't cover those stories. Why would you suggest that a black reporter's objectivity on a story in the black community would should be at issue, but you'd never question that if it was somebody from another ethnicity? And so we've had that issue as well of you know, journalistic um, ethics being essentially used as a sledgehammer against journalists. Uh, so our calls to action include uh, a number of uh, measures that we think can help remedy that, and not the least of which is involving the community in uh, issues of coverage and getting the community to have an input, as well as promoting and, and hiring uh, journalists of color and changing the workplace culture as well. And these calls to action were issued in January of 2020 uh, they went largely ignored by the media until a black man in Minneapolis was killed by police on May 25th. Since then, things have changed dramatically. Why do you feel that there seems to be this sort of um, resistance to change within specifically larger legacy media organizations in Canada? It's a multifaceted uh, answer there, Joe. Let's uh, 
start with some of the things that we know for sure. We have a, a long-standing uh, situation in the media where people of color are compartmentalized into uh, certain very narrow bands. Uh, if you think about the sort of some of the imagery that you've seen, some of the tone of coverage that you've seen over the years, you'll see uh, black people covered in the media when they're victims of racism or when we are speaking out against racism. We're covered uh, when we're athletes to a tremendous degree. Boy, I wish they'd do as many stories on black principals and black politicians and black doctors and black road scholars. I could give you a laundry list of extraordinary Canadians. But the intensity of coverage on issues related to racism, crime, and entertainment, which includes sports, I think that if you took just those three subjects, Joe, racism, crime, and entertainment, including sports, that's the vast majority of the coverage of the community that you'd see right there. But I mean, my goodness, there's so much that uh, so much more that we do. So your you know your question uh, being you know why? Well, it has to do with uh, prejudiced attitudes, seeing us for our skin color first, and then who we are as people second, or not at all, is the root cause of the problem. It's called racism. You've been um, a long-standing member of the CABJ. It's not a new organization. It dates back to 1996, I believe. I was wondering if you could sort of, you know, talk about how this new sort of relaunch of the CABJ compares to, to what it was like to be there at the initial launch back in 96. Right. I had the privilege of being um, on the Ryerson campus, uh, diagonal from the, uh, the Rogers uh, uh, Center, Rogers Broadcasting Center, where um, the CABJ rented out uh, uh, the, the one of the student lounges and uh, many well most of the black journalists in Toronto were there um, and uh, it was quite something to see you know a lot of stories about how at one time in the 70s you could fit all of Toronto's black journalists around a, a table and they would meet for coffee and talk about the need for an organization and it took 20 some years for it to happen and that explains why some of them were crying that day and some of them were really emotional because that day in 96 was the culmination of a 15 to 20 year uh, journey. And of course, there, there was the recollection of how difficult it was. I mean, imagine if we have toxic workplace environments today, Joe, where black people have to hear the N-word spoken in their newsrooms. What do you think it was like in the 70s and 80s? So there was a lot of hope and, and the organization was tremendous at that time. They had awards ceremonies. Uh, trips. I'd made a trip to Chicago uh, where our sister organization, the National Association of Black Journalists, had a convention, and I got to sit and listen to President Bill Clinton, a sitting president, address the convention, job fairs and uh, mentorship programs and all the rest of it, and all in the hopes that uh, the young people like myself at the time coming into the media uh, would be able to truly uh, flourish uh, to the greatest degree possible. Now, what ended up happening over the over the last several decades is we've lost ground by percentage in some parts of the country. There are fewer black journalists now than there than there were in 1996. Uh, let's remember that uh, journalism is very popular in certain communities in this country. The, the the white community very popular. It's become extremely popular among amongst women. Uh, you know many of our top journalists today and, and managers 
our our our, our women and, and the the fight for gender equality uh, has has made tremendous strides. I, I just only wish that the fight for uh, ethnic diversity has made would have made the same strides. Uh, I should also mention that uh, one of the issues uh, is that in in, in communities uh, in, in the black community, like my my family, for example, where you know education is is front and center, extremely important. Uh, a lot of the parents uh, wouldn't necessarily steer their children towards a career in anything anything in the arts. Um, uh, and journalism might be included in that for the simple reason that, you know, many parents want their children to pursue careers where they feel uh, they can make get a job and make money. And it can be difficult sometimes to break into the industry. And so, you know, there, there's the, the whole stereotype of, you know, I want my kid to be a doctor or a lawyer uh, and, and in my family and also a teacher. I have a family of teachers. Um, so in other words, in the black community, you know, one thing the CBJ is, is doing is just making sure that, you know, journalism is on the list uh, for guidance counselors in high schools, for example, and uh, amongst parents, uh, you know, to say this is this this is a, a, a tremendous career. I mean, I've personally had a chance to travel around uh, North America. I've met the Queen. I've met Tiger Woods and I, I, I you know, got to do things that I never would have imagined possible. So. It's just a case of sometimes you have to recruit people and, 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 and persuade families that this is something that they need to encourage their kids to get into. And we have a program at the CABJ we can talk about that is aimed at that very thing. And that was a struggle for you in the beginning when, when you expressed interest as a young person to your family in journalism. What was the what was the reaction like? Yeah, you know, in my in my household specifically, my parents were great. They didn't uh, discourage us from anything. Uh, I, I would only say that, well, when I did graduate from Ryerson, uh, I believe I was the first person in my family ever to graduate with an arts degree. Um, so even though I wasn't personally discouraged from pursuing this path, it's just not a common path in the black community. The black community focuses, I think, more on the, on the sciences and on the healthcare industry and uh, the teaching profession and the business community and those sorts of things. And more and more, we're seeing uh, black people get into tech. So, you know, there's a recruiting effort that needs to happen, too. And that is, this is an industry-wide problem, which is that I've noticed that in some high schools that I've visited, when you go into the guidance counselor's office where there are those pamphlets uh, for different uh, university programs or, or industries, you don't really see any, any media there. So um, that would disproportionately affect the black community for some of the reasons that I've spoken about. And that's why the CABJ, we're taking the bull by the horns with our programs such as J School Noir. Right. And, and why does the media seem to do such a terrible job of, of recruiting among students? Uh, the urgency is not there. Plus, there have been um, reams and reams of cuts over the decades. My entire 25 years in the business has been one series of cuts after another. And there are far fewer journalists in Canada than there were in the 1980s and 90s. And so recruiting and training are two uh, areas that would fall by the wayside there. The other thing is the journalism schools are plentiful in this country and they're churning out many graduates. Nobody, you know, are, 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 nobody feels that journalism is a viable career, so perhaps there's inertia, no urgency to change or to do any, any direct recruiting given that you do have a number of graduates every year and certainly they're not all getting jobs. Well, uh, in the black community, we don't have that luxury. You know, we, we see the urgency we see the lack of representation, not only in uh, on-air positions, but the large number of 
a majority of positions in journalism are behind the scenes, and you'd never see the person's face. Very, very few black people in those jobs. I wanted to talk about your own career and, and you, how you sort of traveled through the journalism world in Canada. Um, so, so after graduating from Ryerson, um, where was your first newsroom experience? Yes, I uh, had been an editorial assistant for the last two years at Ryerson. I was fortunate to work in the national newsroom with Knowlton Nash and Allison Smith and Peter Mansbridge and Wendy Mesley, essentially as a gopher, but still, I was happy to have a job. Then, when I graduated, I moved back to my hometown of Montreal and started working at CBC Montreal uh, and uh, was there for about a year. Uh, drifted out of the business uh, for a short period of time and wound up at the Canadian Press, where I really cut my teeth. Uh, worked in Montreal, Ottawa, and Fredericton, as well as uh, some assignments in Halifax, where I currently live. And uh, that was where I really learned the foundations of journalism, which is a profession where you do do most of your learning, in my opinion, on the job. That uh, run at the Canadian Press really made my career because uh, towards the end of my run, I had the great honor of being chosen to be the uh, lead uh, reporter for the Gomery Inquiry into the federal sponsorship scandal in 2005, which uh, essentially brought down Paul Martin's government and paved the way for a change of government. And I had a, had a chance to cover that for the last three months that I was at CP before I made my uh, big change and became a television producer. And I've spent the last 15 years producing uh, local supper hour television newscasts at all three networks. It's been an unusual career in that I've worked for Global, CTV, and CBC and really learned a lot about how uh, this the industry works from different uh, perspectives in different corporate environments. And it's been a lot of fun. It's a very exciting job. And um, I didn't you know, think when I first got into business that I would be spending most of my career behind the scenes. I idolized Peter Jennings, actually, growing up and wanted to be a network news anchor and all that stuff. But uh, when I actually got into business, I found that I really took to producing uh, newscasts and taking more of a leadership role and molding and shaping the content that Canadians see and hear every night. Right. And, and being behind the scenes, do you ever, you know, miss those days when you were back in Montreal on the crime beat, like when you were covering uh, the biker wars or covering the Rizzuto family? Do you ever get sentimental? Yeah. Well, you just mentioned uh, some of the very few things that get me wanting to get back out there are exciting stories, which tend, unfortunately, to be your negative stories. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, of course, I've covered incredible, uplifting stories in my career. A lot of the sports stories that I've mentioned, you know, getting to cover Tiger Woods at the Canadian Open, for example, right when he was in the midst of his uh, dominant run around 2000, 2001. A year or two later, flew up to Iqaluit to cover the Queen and Prince Philip visiting a Kaluit. And um, and then, of course, yes, on the other side, you, you there is the seedy side. You're talking, of course, about uh, in Montreal, your organized crime and uh, what a what a saga it, it, it was in terms of covering the biker wars from the time that uh, they were actually killing public officials, such as prison guards, in the late 90s. I got to cover that and some of the bombings. It was like a war zone, really, in, in parts of Montreal in the late 90s, early 2000s, when the Hells Angels and the Rock Machine were at each other's throats. And through it all, uh, quietly, the Rizzuto crime family were really the masterminds of the entire crime scene in Montreal, much, much more low-key and uh, not terribly violent throughout most of the uh, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. And that's how they were able to um, 
really be the ones uh, controlling the entire criminal environment. And there's, you know, books have been written on it, and I've even considered writing a book on how the Rizzutos were able to do what they did. Right, and you'd be well-situated to do so because you you actually wrote an obituary for Vito Rizzuto after he died. Wow. That's one of those things, man. Like, when you get into this business, some of the stuff that you get to do is stuff that you would never would have dreamed. I got to write the, the obituary for uh, Frank Catroni, who was the head of the mafia before Vito Rizzuto. Then when Vito died, surprisingly of natural causes... Um, not of not in, a, in an assassination. I got to write it. I got to write the obituary for that man, and I, I wrote the obituary for Jacques Parizeau, the man who came as close as anyone to breaking up our country in 1995. I wrote his obituary. So, I mean, you you've obviously, I mean, it's clear that you've had this this sort of long storied, maybe slightly atypical career. And you mentioned the sort of difficulties that might sort of dissuade people, specifically young black people, from entering the profession. I'm wondering, you know, what what kept you going and kept you at it? Listen, um, I had two parents who loved me. I had two parents who had been through terrible, terrible racism. My late mother was an immigrant from the West Indies, had to fa- had to work as a domestic, a maid, for a year before she was even allowed to become a permanent resident. That was in 1957-58. My father was born in the historic black Montreal community of Little Burgundy and had to deal with terrible, terrible racism in the 40s. But yet, by the time I was born, um, they were raising my brother and I to not be bitter, to be positive, to make sure that we get as many degrees as possible. My dad has three university degrees. My mom has had two. Um, Unfortunately, I don't have as many as they do. But um, they uh, said, education will, will be the key for you. And you need to focus on what you're going to do in a proactive way to make this world a better place. And my parents, who were both teachers, lived that out because in addition to being teachers, they gave so much of their time to helping youth through tutoring, uh, which was a, a tradition in my mother's family especially, uh, uh, to give uh, you know give of your time uh, in the summertime and whatnot to tutor young people. So I got to see them live that out. And so uh, my family and my parents were not complainers. Um, So um, it was more difficult for me to come into this uh, business, despite all the uh, difficulties of being a black person in this business, it was difficult for me to have that attitude of uh, negativity. Um, And so to this day, I've tended to just keep it moving and uh, just focus in on on doing the job well. And ultimately, you know, this is all kind of complicated in terms of diversity. What should the targets be? What should uh, you know, when when at what point do we reach a threshold where uh, we can feel good about where things are going in terms of diversity and I, I do find there needs to be more of an emphasis on on this question because otherwise it's just this eternal battle and this eternal uh, debate well to me it's quite simple when somebody will see me for my qualifications and what I can bring to the table more than anything and when a meritocracy a true meritocracy exists then we won't have these problems we only have employment equity because we have racism. We only have special uh, funds for uh, diverse candidates or fellowships for diverse candidates because we have a racism problem. We wouldn't need those things if people of color, including black people, were simply uh, recognized for our tremendous qualifications. But it's not happening. And to that end, with this J School Noir program, that seems like sort of a, a concrete effort to try and redress 
um, some of those issues that you just mentioned. And I, and I was wondering if you could just tell me a little bit about it. Like, what is J School Noir? J School Noir at its core is uh, black journalists helping black youth enter the field of journalism and media in general. Doesn't have to be mainstream media. Could be uh, you could you know uh, somebody who wants to get into digital media, be a YouTube influencer, TikTok influencer. Uh, we don't care. We just want black youth in Canada to tell their stories, to have the platform to tell their stories, to learn the skill set necessary to tell their stories. Let's remember um, uh, one of the issues in um, the media is that. Uh, some people, their parents were journalists, their grandparents were journalists, and their great-grandparents were journalists. They are insiders. They Even before they get into the industry, they already have a leg up on a lot of the black kids because um, some people um, have uh, uh, people they know who can help them, shepherd, shepherd them into the industry. Well, black youth need to have that as well. J School Noir is about uh, black journalists like myself sharing our knowledge with them during annual camps that happen during Black History Month. This year it'll be in Toronto, Ottawa, Edmonton, and Halifax, two-day camps. We bring black journalists in this year virtually in order to uh, teach them. We bring in partners. Our sponsorship partners this year are the University of King's College, CTV News, CBC News, and Google. They pitch in. They do workshops either during the camps or afterward. And then we hook up these young people with mentors. Uh, we, black, the black journalists, are primarily the mentors. Our partners, who I just named, are also um, mentoring these young people. And the whole thing being, you, when you apply, let's say, to journalism school, you want to make sure you have a great portfolio. Well, what better way to have a great portfolio than to um, have produced content and have been mentored by professionals starting you know, as early as when you were in grade 7 or 8? And so we uh, are going to keep, keep building this program out. We'll God willing, expand to Regina, Montreal, and Vancouver in 2022. So now you'll have a national network of camps where black youth can learn from professionals who are giving back to them and be mentored by those professionals. The end result we know is going to be that some of these young people will choose a career in media because media is an ever-broadening uh, industry uh, now that we have the digital space that uh, where you can uh, start up your own YouTube channel and uh, start up your own digital publication and build an audience. And so we're encouraging p young people to do that, but also equipping them with the skills to do it. And and how have the first few been? Right. So we are, we had our inaugural event last year in Halifax. It was an in-person event. We had 12 young people from across Nova Scotia who uh, came to uh, Nova Scotia Community College, which has a great professional level TV lab. King's College were the sponsors. Global News uh, made a great announcement of a very uh, uh, lucrative scholarship for a, a young black student to attend King's College. Uh, the event itself went great. Uh, we had a VJ named Whitney Oikel who taught the young people how to shoot, how to edit, how to interview each other. The young people also uh, got to uh, sit in the uh, anchor chair at NSCC and you know the lights turned on and the prompter teleprompter was going and the music so we had them record newscasts. There was another historic announcement today. King's College and Global News announced a new scholarship for black students. The scholarship is worth more than $10,000. All of the students at J School Noir were encouraged to apply for the new scholarship. Oh. Today was, the f was all about inspiring us to become storytellers, to tell our stories to the world. The goal is to spread J School Noir right across Canada. But it all started here in Nova Scotia. I'm Micah Mendez. And I'm Mia Curry. Thanks for watching. And um, they loved it. Matter of fact, 
the greatest thing that uh, I took from it was that a few uh, weeks after the event in February, uh, we re we received a message from one of the young women who attended the J School Noir Halifax camp, and she told us that although she had been thinking about pursuing a career in law, she changed her mind and now wanted to uh, apply to journalism school and be a journalist. I mean, think about it. One camp, the very first one we ever put on, and somebody has already uh, decided to pursue a career in journalism. Now imagine if, if uh, every time we put on a camp, even one of the uh, students made that made a decision like that, the cumulative effect of that can be tremendous. Considering we we put on four, we're putting on four camps this year. We'll be putting on seven camps a year by 2022. Maybe we'll expand even more than that. When there are problems uh, such as the ones that we're describing and talking about here today, Joe, those who are in a position to help need to help. When I was coming into the business, I had journalists, white as well as black, who helped me and mentored me. So it's the least I could do that now that I'm in a position to give back that I do the same. And uh, we have partners in, across all ethnicities who are willing to help black youth. And that's really encouraging, too. Um, I think one of the problems, uh, root causes of racism is compartmentalization and stereotyping, feeling that if a, black, if a person is black, they only talk about black issues. If you turn on the TV and see a black person speaking, they must be talking about something specifically of interest to blacks. Well, that's not the case. For the first time, I'm starting to see black real estate experts and black uh, financial analysts on t Canadian television, you know, uh, black uh, medical professionals giving medical advice. It's not like we've only had these, uh, these, 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 these uh, people in these positions in the last few years. We've had black doctors in Canada since the 19th century. They just haven't been on television until now. And I think that's a really nice note to end it on. So I just want to say thank you so much for agreeing to, to talk to me today. It's been a pleasure. Brian Daly is a television producer at CBC News in Halifax. He's also the Atlantic Director of the Canadian Association of Black Journalists. If you'd like to read more about the CABJ and CJOC's calls to action, you can find them at cabj.news or cjoc.net. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe to Pull Quotes on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for our next episode, which will be released in two weeks. If you'd like to read Emily's profile of CABJ Director Nadia Stewart, and her organization's whirlwind year in the wake of the George Floyd protests, then make sure to pick up the print edition of the Review of Journalism, available this spring. Pull Quotes is produced by me, Joe Fish, and Emma Jones. With special thanks to Angela Glover, Sonia Fada, Scott McLean, and Lindsay Hanna. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks.